HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Welcome to Meet and Three, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and executive director of HRN, Katie Mosman-Wadler. This week, what do Legos, Salt Bay, and a cheese truck have in common? I'll let Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's Pizza, fill you in. Bureaucratic red tape. Yep. Today's show focuses on the different ways regulations affect people in the food industry. So why does red tape make restaurateurs cringe? All of us out here, people, all we want to do is work. We just want to work. That's Dave Arnold of HRN's Cooking Issues. He just opened a new bar, Existing Conditions, in Greenwich Village, so he understands that having to follow certain rules can be an obstacle to success. We asked some of our HRN hosts about their experiences with red tape. Opening a bar with a liquor license here is just stupidly complicated. When you're going to open a bar, you're like, uh, how close are you to a school or a church? Now, this is not the freaking suburbs. There's schools and churches everywhere here. And, you know, it's not like you're serving liquor to the school children or to the churchgoers unless they want it. Souther Teague of the Speakeasy has been running into bureaucracy, too. You know, we just signed a new lease on our space in the Lower East Side, and we had to go through the community board to get our hours approved. And we asked for a 2 a.m. license, which we don't think is out of the ordinary for the neighborhood. And they only gave us midnight, which will impede our business pretty considerably. But also, worse still is that they not only only gave us till midnight, they're compelling us to open our doors at noon. Not only are they making us close early, they're forcing us to open for lunch. So now that's going to be extra labor, extra food costs, extra all these extra pieces to the puzzle. And then having to shut down to, for the switchover from lunch to dinner. Like, for a small business, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of difficulty that's being imposed upon us by, by frankly, a kind of arbitrary system. And Jimmy Carboni, Beer Sessions radio host and seasoned bar owner, remembers the chaos when New York City first changed its restaurant rating rules. What was really hard was when New York City 2010 to 11 rolled out the new letter grades they changed the rules. So it wasn't just changing it from a, a number grade to a letter grade. It was that suddenly if you didn't get the A, you were going to have to get reinspected, And they had to hire a lot more inspectors who weren't experienced. And that was a really difficult time in uh, New York City restaurants and bars. And 
A lot of us suffered for it. Um, I think the lesson is don't change the rules of the game uh, in the middle of the game. But in New York City, it isn't all bad news. Hannah Forden has the story on our favorite red tape reversal of the year. In HRN's very own neighborhood, one local leader is fighting for our right to party. I'm Rafael Espinal. I'm a city councilman from Brooklyn. I represent the 37th district, which is the neighborhoods of North Brooklyn. During his second term in city council, Rafael Espinal made it his mission to overturn New York City's notorious cabaret law. When I decided to introduce a bill to repeal the law, a lot of legislators and people um, involved in City Hall felt that I would be opening up Pandora's box. Put on the books in 1926, the cabaret law made it illegal for venues to have, quote, musical entertainment, singing, dancing, or other forms of amusement without a license. Dancing didn't pose any threat. Dancing didn't make a venue any less safer. I guess the idea was that if there was dancing going on in that venue, most likely alcohol was being served. Councilman Espinal and his colleagues dug through the city's legal history, looking at how the law was enforced over the past 91 years. In the 30s, uh, during the Harlem Jazz Renaissance, uh, there were a lot of white folks who were going up to Harlem to go to the popping jazz bars, and they used the, the law as a way to crack down on those bars and venues so that intermingling wouldn't occur. Fast forward to the 70s, while the uprising around Stonewall was happening, the NYPD kind of saw it as a way to go after uh, gay and lesbian clubs because they were trying to crack down and not allow for the LGBT community to organize. Giuliani in New York City notoriously used the law to go after a lot of dance club venues and especially venues in communities of color. So this is a law that has a long history of being racist and homophobic and being used to go after marginalized communities. Espinal decided to introduce a motion to repeal this legislation. But that's just the beginning, right? I had to introduce a law and I had to have uh, public hearings where everyone from across the city had to come and testify. So there was a whole host of red tape and pushback from all over the city. But Espinal persevered. And in October 2017, he succeeded in getting the cabaret law struck down with the support of Mayor Bill de Blasio. He also helped to create a brand new organization, the Office of Nightlife. The Office of Nightlife will be a tool and not a barrier to entry and being able to open up your own nightclub or DIY space. Getting rid of this law kind of made it clear that, one, the city, as we stand today, wanted to wear red tape. But also, we believe that people should feel that they're not being enforced upon for unnecessary reasons. Now we're making sure that the NYPD has access to cameras and that every venue has cameras put in place to make sure that club goers are safe. The new rules in place make it easier for owners of music venues to comply with safety regulations and to open their doors to the public. What I'm hearing from the owners is that I saved them a few months of having to go through paperwork and and having to pay lawyers thousands of dollars to go through the process. And to hear that all of these great new venues, independent venues especially, that are popping up uh, are able to save money and able to keep their doors open because of this. It feels great that I was able to get back to a community that, that does so much for our city. Last weekend, Rafael Espinal and the new Office of Nightlife joined 10,000 dancers hitting the streets of Manhattan for the annual dance parade. Despite pouring rain, 
New Yorkers with traditions and roots from all over the world came together to celebrate a great year for dance. In New Haven, Connecticut, a new law is complicating matters for the city's food truck scene. Sarah Strong has the story. Like many other cities, New Haven has a thriving food truck scene. But out of the blue two years ago, city officials informed mobile food vendors that they were operating illegally. I spoke to Tom Sobosinski, a local restaurateur who is also co-owner of the Casey's Cheese Truck, about the surprising turn of events. So I definitely understand the city's feeling of having to have guidelines and rules and some enforcement, but the city consistently... Uh, in my opinion, enforces stuff incorrectly and doesn't give us any kind of warning. The problem? The city decided to implement part of an ordinance that they had generally overlooked and told the food trucks and carts that they were operating in residential areas because the streets had Yale dorms. Jim Tercio of the Office of Building Inspection and Enforcement in New Haven told me via email that the language about residential zones has always existed, but was not previously enforced. When they launched the cheese truck about nine years ago, there wasn't much direction. So at the time, they said to me, okay, here's your license. You can park anywhere you want. Don't go within 50 feet or 75 feet of a competing brick and mortar. We figured, well, yeah, that's common courtesy anyway. But New Haven's solution to the residential zone ban isn't very courteous to food trucks. This year, every mobile vendor was given a permanent spot. Tom explains. The downside is that we, you know, we're pretty much like a brick and mortar because we're we have that same spot. We can't move. So when Yale went on break, usually we would go over to Broadway, and you know you can hit where there's a bunch of stores and people are doing Christmas shopping. Now they can't do that, and the permanent spot given to the cheese truck is in the middle of Yale campus, which gets much less foot traffic during the summer months. Last year, New Haven hired a vending enforcement officer to be a liaison between the merchants and the city to try and improve communications. Hopefully, she can help create a more mobile solution for the vendors. Now that it's in a fixed location, the cheese truck has less business and is just breaking even. This purported solution to a red tape problem is hurting local business. We'll be back in a moment with our feature story this week, a report on how one city's parking problem has a local restaurateur carrying Legos around in protest. Think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long-chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Welcome back to Meat and 3, 
Michaela Hack has the story of Ryan Pernice's fight to convince his local government to support the growing restaurant scene in Roswell, Georgia. The city of Roswell, Georgia is something of a hidden gem in the shadow of Atlanta. Over the past 10 years, its historic district especially has grown from being a sleepy little suburb into something of a foodie destination. But try checking it out for yourself, and you'll soon encounter the one issue that's driving some of its residents crazy. There's just nowhere to park. That's Ryan Pernice, a Roswell native and one of the city's most promising restaurateurs. In 2011, Ryan opened Table in Maine, and despite an economic recession, managed to make it a huge success. This past year, it was named one of the 50 best restaurants in Atlanta magazine. Ryan's other place in Roswell, Osteria Matone, has also received much praise for its authentic Roman cuisine. Restaurants like Ryan's have contributed immensely to Roswell becoming a popular place to visit over the years. But in addition to running these businesses, Ryan is also a member of the Historic Roswell Business Association and has become the loudest proponent in the city of Roswell for putting a parking deck in place. I would say that's fair, yeah. (laughs) I think whether or not people like the message, everyone would agree I'm loud, yes. But Ryan has his reasons for being loud. For several years now, Roswell business owners have been asking city government to build a parking deck for their current and would-be customers. Though in the past 10 years, Roswell's historic district has seen amazing economic growth, with the number of restaurants especially having multiplied, Ryan doesn't necessarily see this success continuing without an adequate parking solution. We are losing retail restaurants and art galleries because those businesses depend on foot traffic and the foot traffic is no longer coming because as we dawdle in our solution to this problem, neighboring cities are fixing it. Neighboring cities like Alpharetta, which lies just six miles north of Roswell, already has several free public parking decks, including a shopping and entertainment development called Avalon, and just voted to fund another last November. It's tough to compete with free. So if people know that they can go shop for a thing, whatever that thing is, in Avalon and find easy free parking versus Roswell and have to circle for 30 minutes before they have to pay $10 for valet, we're going to lose those visitors. And, according to Ryan, the city isn't just losing visitors. It's potentially losing the businesses that bring those visitors as well. There are several Roswell restaurateurs, myself included, who are not opening their next restaurant in downtown Roswell because businesses are figuring out, look, if I'm not going to be supported by the city, I'm going to bring my business elsewhere and not further invest. Ryan isn't alone in this opinion. I spoke with Rand Cabus, owner of Roswell's Mojo Vinyl Record Store and the current chairman of the Historic Roswell Business Association. Oh, I, I have customers complain about it all the time. There's no place to park, you know. Um, where, where are you supposed to park around here? I don't know if Ryan went into it, but the previous Merchants Association had articles in the newspaper from 15 years ago about how they were talking with the city about parking and the city was going to build a build a parking garage, and guess what? That never happened. When I asked Rand why he suspected the government has been so slow to act towards this goal, he said it was largely because of the cost and the degree to which they see additional parking as an actual need. They don't want to spend the money on it. They have other priorities. The real thing, and I think this is it, is the historic district has done incredibly well over the last 10 years. We went from basically one or two restaurants to 22 in less than 10 years. 
well, you know, you guys are doing okay on your own. Why should we bother? And what does Rand believe are the government's other priorities? Well, as, as one of Ryan's best little jokes, I asked for parking and I got parks. Roswell has the highest acreage of parks of any city in the Atlanta area. Can we refocus those efforts and do things to support the businesses? I reached out to Roswell City Council and city government multiple times, but didn't receive any replies to my requests for comment. But from what Ryan and Rand both tell me, it doesn't sound like there's anyone in government, nor in the community, who is necessarily opposed to the idea of a parking garage. Instead, it seems to come down to a matter of that age-old red tape. That frustratingly sticky adherence to rules and process is what seems to stand between Roswell's business owners and their desired concrete answer to it all. But the Historic Roswell Business Association, or HRBA, has had some victories. Last November, Roswell held elections that resulted in a new mayor and four new city council members, many of whom the HRBA campaigned for. The HRBA has also continued to attend city council meetings and keep their agenda front and center. And Ryan and Rand are certainly not giving up. We're still waiting for the city to make a move. And the key, the key to that is to keep the pressure on until, you know, keep talking about it until they do. In addition to being vocal at town meetings, Ryan has also taken an extra creative step to get the city of Roswell's attention. After creating the Roswell Parking Now Facebook group, which boasts 478 members as of this story, Ryan also purchased a Lego Play Place parking deck and started touting it around town taking photos of it on ideal plots of land and promoting them on Facebook. Picture a six foot six, 32 year old man parting a Lego play place parking deck around town. That's where we're at, that's our society. That's activism in America today. In the meantime, if you're planning to visit the historic district of Roswell anytime soon, be prepared to walk. So clearly, red tape is a killjoy, and cities are struggling to enforce the rules while leaving room for innovation. Our final tale of woe is about red tape stifling a favorite internet phenomenon. A year ago, Nusret Koçe, a Turkish butcher and restaurateur, posted a video of himself on Instagram chopping up meat. He's wearing a tight white t-shirt, dark sunglasses, his long hair held back in a ponytail, with the precision of a surgeon, Koche holds up the steak at eye level, sizes up his prey, and proceeds to rhythmically slice the meat for 36 seconds. The clip ends with a flick of his wrist and a dramatic sprinkling of salt. It's mesmerizing. Simultaneously sexy and strange, the video went viral and Salt Bay was born. James Corden gave him a mention on The Late Late Show. I cannot get enough of this man's meat skills. It might be the, the most erotic thing I've ever seen. I'm not joking, this man is like the Christian Grey of red meat. Michael Phelps posed for a pic mimicking Salt Bay's signature sprinkle. He even appeared on Dr. Oz. GQ and The New York Times published articles about his restaurant. But in the end, Food media would bring this meat god back down to earth. 
Eater New York published an article this past January questioning the food safety of Salt Bay touching the meat while serving tableside without gloves. Article 81 of New York City Health Code states, food shall be prepared and served without bare hand contact. So unless the food is going to be heated again, chefs and servers must be wearing food grade gloves. And sure enough, after the Department of Health was notified, Salt Bay was spotted wearing a pair of black sanitary gloves on the floor of his restaurant. They distract a bit from his meaty mystique, but the health code laid down the law. No glove, no love. Do you have your own nightmare red tape tale or an innovative solution to share? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at ideas at meetn3.nyc. That's all spelled out or tweet us at heritage underscore radio. And remember, if absurd bureaucratic rules are driving you insane, it could always be worse. Here's Roberta's co-owner, Brandon Hoy, again. Okay, the craziest complaint actually was we we had numerous amounts of calls um, saying that it smelled like pizza. That's it for this week's show. Be sure to save some room on your plate for Meat and 3 every Friday afternoon. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to HRN hosts Dave Arnold, Damon Bolte, Jimmy Carboni, Brandon Hoy, and Souther Teague. Meat and 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Margaret Kelly, Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Additional reporting by Hannah Forden, Lila Goldstein, Michaela Heck, and Sarah Strong. Our audio engineer is David Tatashore. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Tune in next week for a new episode of Meet and Three. Our show will be all about taking a stand. 